Hello, I'm Buddy Martin, and this is the Best Fridays in Football podcast with Urban Meyer and Terry Bradshaw. Welcome to the Best Fridays in Football, where we feature Urban Meyer's podcast. A little later, a couple other guys you might know, including Coach Steve Spurrier, Paul Feinbaum, and Tony Barnhart. But this is where we feature Coach Meyer and his podcast. Urban, thanks for doing this, and look forward to it every week. And uh, this is a good week to be talking about college football. It is. It's a big week, especially for the Gators in Georgia, and that's something that from day one when uh, I was a head coach at Florida, the shadow of Steve Spurrier and the shadow of you cannot lose to Georgia was there. And uh, it's there this week. Dan, Coach Mullen, uh, this is, I, I believe, as we talked about earlier, this is the biggest game of his career. Boy, oh boy, there's a lot going on right there. And uh, it seems as though some things have come together uh, for the Gators and for Dan in recent uh, days and, and weeks. The defense played a lot better, especially on third down. I think they only gave up three of 15 this time around after being uh, sort of an easy touch for a first down the first three games. Then you got uh, <clears throat> Kyle Trask, a little bit slow starting, but this guy is developing to, I think, a premier quarterback. He now has... 18 touchdown passes in four games. Nobody's ever done that in the SEC. Uh, you and I have had conversations about whether he's elite or not. <clears throat> and uh, you say not yet, but I would think if he goes and beats Georgia and pitches a couple of touchdowns, he might make Urban Meyer's elite status. I'd agree. I, I think, you know, quarterbacks are, are very easy to evaluate. Uh, in my world. And that, and that is, it's not yards. It's not actually touchdown passes. It's winning games. And there's a reason that Tom Brady is the greatest quarterback of all time. And you can't argue that he, that he's not. Um, it's because he's won more Super Bowls than everyone else. And I would say the same, that there's been a lot of really good quarterbacks, but that's the one position, whether you like it or not, you are strictly evaluated by winning and winning championships. And if he goes through his Gator career, Without one in the championship, he's going to be a really good quarterback. But you can't put him in the Chris Lee category. You can't put him in the Danny Werfel category. You just can't do that because he didn't win a championship. Uh, if he wins a conference championship, then he's certainly into the uh, conversation. Into the, uh, yeah, the, and that's a very serious conversation. Well, he's not statue material. Put it like that at this point in time. I'm not sure if he ever will be. But this guy's story is kind of remarkable when you go dig into it. And I know you know most of it. And going coming out of nowhere, out of oblivion, I call it mothballs, never started a game since he's a freshman in high school in Mample, Texas, all the way back here. Kind of was a, I don't want to say semi-walk-on, but, uh, you know, Doug Nussmeyer went out there to look at another guy and came back and, and talked to Jim McElwain about him, and there wasn't enough film to evaluate him. So they gave him a scholarship. And here he is that night, I think it was September the 14th last year, Felipe Franks carted off with a serious injury, an emotional moment, and they called on number 11 to come in the game. Who knew what he would do? They were down at that point in time. I think it was like 21 to 11 and something like that. He brings it back and actually scores a touchdown. 
And you think, well, was that a fluke? And then engineers the victory, and then the rest is history, as they say. Urban, that was that's quite a that's quite a story about a guy being ready when he was called upon. Sure is. I wasn't that familiar with his story. Uh, I've read bits and pieces of it. I can tell you, Dan Mullen is as good a quarterback coach as I've been around. There's a common theme that when he gets around a quarterback, the quarterback performs. And I, I know the way he teaches. So he, we were together for so long. And he, you know, from Josh Harris to Alex Smith, to obviously Chris Leak and Tebow, you know, his development, and then obviously Mississippi State, one of the great quarterbacks in the NFL, Dak Prescott, you know, he's a developer. And you give a guy, you give Dan a guy with any talent and effort, he'll make him a heck of a player. Well, I want to get into that with you because I want to, just going to ask you about developing players and preparing them for that moment. And you had a bunch at Florida, Ohio State, Utah, whatever. You've had them. Uh, and I think it's important. And also, I want to talk about Brian Johnson a little bit. He's the offensive coordinator and Dan's quarterback coach. And one thing he does I find interesting, and maybe it's not that unique, but it seems to be, and I asked Coach Johnson this week about it, all quarterbacks get the same number of reps. I find that hard to believe, but they all get the same reps at practice. Sounds kind of crazy, but then when called upon, you've got your reps. You're not coming out of mothballs. Have you ever heard of that before? Is it common? What do you think of it? Do you think that probably got Kyle Trask ready for that moment in Lexington? That's interesting. I didn't, I didn't realize that. I know that was not exactly the way we operated. Um, it, you know, the first and second quarterback maybe did, but I don't When you said all quarterbacks, all three, you know, a lot of mm-hmm. there's a third string quarterback and he'll get the same reps as the one. Uh, that's, I think, a fairly unique uh, way of doing it. Uh, but I was not aware of that. Let's talk about what you did, the success you've had. You certainly had that. And let's, let, how did you, and you were a quarterback receiver guy, of course, you were the head coach, but you particularly got interested in that. Talk about some of your quarterbacks and how you saw them turn the corner. My gosh, Alex Smith is a great story. Tremendous comeback. Let's talk about a few favorite moments that you had when you say, okay, he's got this. He's going to do it. And then how did you convince them they could do it? Well, we're, I've been around quarterbacks and receivers my entire career. And I, I've mismanaged. I've seen other coaches mismanage the quarterback position. It is the most unique position in all of sport. Um, and not just football, in all of sport. I, I've never seen another. It's a little bit like a point guard, but not, not really. Uh, a quarterback has got to have qualities of leadership, of toughness, uh, and obviously intelligence to go along with the skill set. If he doesn't have those, you know, I've had a quarterback say, it's just not my style to lead other people. And I said, well, at least we got that out of the way because you can't play quarterback then because you have to. That's non-negotiable. That's the one position where all 10 other players look back at you for direction, for leadership, for toughness. And so those are the qualities that has to we, you, you first have to determine they have. As far as release, arm strength, accuracy, those are all things that can be taught. Obviously, you'd love to have someone that's, that has them all, but that, that can be taught. And you can see what Dan, Dan Mullen's done with Trask. He's t- Kyle Trask, he, he didn't have all the things that uh, Dan's taught him as far as release, accuracy, and arm strength. He's taught them that. Same with when we first got there. Tim Tebow and Chris Leak didn't have all those qualities. What they did have, and we developed it and pushed it 
is the leadership toughness and intelligence. And that's something that uh, you have to have. We, uh, I believe in a quarterback being played after he's ready, not before he's ready. And I've shared that with many times over and over again, because I've seen quarterbacks thrust into situations and the quarter, the coordinator, quarterback coach and head coach call plays that really put him in a bad position. And once a quarterback loses confidence, that, that it takes forever to get that back. Mm. And I've done it before. I'm like, why did we do that? You know, let a guy manage the game for a while. Let the others, you know, don't don't put it all on his shoulders too soon because that's not fair to that kid. And, and if he loses confidence, his, co- his teammates lose some confidence in him, that's one position that you it's really, really hard to get back. So we've always taken the, you know, Alex Smith was a perfect example that we eased him into it. You know, he was with us for a while, and then we eased him into it, eased him into it, and then we would actually let him tell us the plays he wanted early in the game because we wanted to make sure he got some rhythm into that game. Well, you've had experiences with uh, some great talent. Tebow was just uh, around, certainly the personification of leadership, and you didn't have to get him up. He was ready to go, and his skill set improved. He was never a great passer, although his stats are pretty impressive when you look at them. So, Tim, we kind of know about. Talk about anybody else. You've had some great ones at Ohio State. Uh, you know, and any particular thing that you saw that was a breakthrough for your quarterback at Ohio State or Florida. Uh, there was a moment with Chris Leak, I can remember, that it was the FSU game. And you guys needed to score. And you're, I think you're on like your 30 or whatever it was. There was a timeout, and Chris came to the sideline. And you were trying to figure out what to do. You were trying to run the ball. And you said, Coach, let me do it. Let me take this one. I mean, let me, let me lead us down the field on this. And he wanted the ball. And you said, okay. And he went out there and took him down the field and scored. And you talked about that moment for Chris Leak, the leadership that he showed there. That's what you wanted to see in a quarterback. That's exactly it. And Chris wasn't willing to step out of his comfort zone his uh, junior year and, and do that. You know, late in the junior year, like you said, against Florida State, he kind of did. But early on, it was, you know, he just didn't have that confidence. And we didn't do a great job of bringing it out of him. But every – you know, I go back to Alex Smith one time. He, <clears throat> I always, <clears throat> we always talk about the game at some point slowing down for you. <clears throat> Excuse me. And when the game slows down, that means that college football is so fast, so chaotic, that as a quarterback, when things are moving so quickly, you're responsible for the other 10 guys. You're responsible for the snap count. You're responsible to know everything the defense is doing and adjusting a lot of times post-snap or on the move. And once the game slows down, and that's, to me, that's teaching, that's coaching, and that's where Dan is so good at it. Once the game slows down, I remember Alex Smith saying to me, the game finally slowed down, and boy, once a quarterback gets the feel for the game slowing down, that's when magic starts to happen. And every every quarterback's had that moment. You know, Tebow's one of those guys that came in ready to rock and roll, but really not ready to be the full-time quarterback uh, until his uh, sophomore year. You know, his, his freshman year, he actually had a shoulder injury a little bit too, but he served an incredible purpose, and that was to be the you know, the relief pitcher for Chris Leak. But Chris Leak, we talked about his moment. When I got here, we had a kid named Braxton Miller that became Big Ten player there two years in a row. J.T. Barrett lost his second game as a starter to an unranked Virginia Tech and went on to lead us to a, um, a chance to compete for a national championship. 
And then a guy like Cardell Jones was a guy that go, he'll be a legend at Ohio State uh, for those three games and winning a national title. He had his moment. That was at Wisconsin um, when the game did slow down for him. So that's a typical phrase that you'll hear quarterbacks say that the game slows down for him. And, uh, and they, you know, when that happens, that's, that's usually a sign of great success to follow. And you had plenty of quarterbacks. You couldn't play them all. <laughs> and one of them went to LSU and did a pretty good job, I'd say. That was a tough call you made, but it worked out for both of you. Joe Burrow, uh, doing pretty well as a pro, too. And, of course, I don't have to tell you, he had a fabulous year. And now you see once Burrow's gone, the offensive uh, coordinator is gone, and things have changed for Coach O. So I don't know if it's just a cycle, but I know Joe Burrow not being there was a big part of what's happening in Baton Rouge. Yeah, Joe Burrow's one of great success stories, and he's doing great in the NFL. Um, that was one of those tough calls, man. It's a little bit like when we had Tebow and Cam Newton. You know, we have two Heisman guys basically on our on our uh, roster. And then you had Dwayne Haskins, who set a record 50 touchdown passes at Ohio State and uh, was a first-round draft pick. And then you have Joe Burrow. It was a very close battle. Uh, you know, it been interesting that Joe would have not got hurt. When he got hurt, his, I believe it was sophomore year or junior year, and then Dwayne Haskins came in and really came in and actually beat the team up north when we were down um, and never really gave up his job. So, yeah, we've, we've done a really good job recruiting quarterbacks. I think that so is Dan Mullen. You know, Dan's going to – if you're a great quarterback, you need to go to a great – system that develops quarterbacks and that's what we have at Ohio State with Ryan Day now and that's what Dan Mullen have at Florida. Pretty good country quarterback you got at Ohio State right now and just to think he could have been at Georgia and what things would have been there. Boy he's something he's uh he has as many touchdown passes as he has incompletions think about that six six incompletions in two games and um you know, they're going to be a three-touchdown favorite. The Big Ten's down a little bit, but Justin Fields, I'd, I'd have to think he's well, – him along with Mac Jones are the leaders now for the Heisman that Trevor Lawrence is have COVID issues. Um, I'm getting already a couple phone calls about our thoughts on him being the potential number one or number two draft pick overall. Hmm. He's got it all. And, and on top of that, he turned out to be an incredible leader and incredible person. He's been watching on the sideline as that big game goes off. Clemson, Notre Dame, sort of the accidental matchup. Uh, and uh, it's, uh, I think, Clemson's favorite, uh, pretty good. Uh, some people are wondering if Notre Dame's got a game in them. Uh, what do you think? Uh, I got one of the Ask Urban questions about that later on, but give me your thoughts about the Clemson-Notre Dame game. Oh, sure, it's going to be a heck of a game. The point spread dropped seven points, I believe, when Trevor Lawrence was – uh, not for, not going to be able to play. I think that's going to be a very tight game. I think Notre Dame's pretty good. Notre Dame's got a shot to compete for that fourth spot in the college football playoff. Uh, Roster-wise, they're probably not quite exactly the speed athleticism that a Clemson has, but make no mistake about it, they got a good quarterback in Ian Book. they got good skill, and their defense is playing pretty well also. So I, I it'd be hard to say that uh, – it's going to be a very tight game. I can't. I'm going to do a little more film and uh, before I can, because they're going to ask me on Big Noon kickoff our thoughts on uh, who can win that game. But I think it's going to be really close. All right, we've sort of dilly dallied around. Now we're getting to the real story. 
and that's one for you in the famous timeout game. Part of Florida lore, I'm going to ask you to tell it from the beginning, starting with the year before, what happened. Uncharacteristically, Mark Rick came on the field, stormed the field. For those who haven't heard it, would you take it from that moment uh, when that happened in Jacksonville uh, in that game and then move it forward to what happened on the timeout game? Okay, well, I got there in 2005, and, and uh, we won. 2006, we won, won the national championship. And then uh, uh, 2007, Georgia scores. They had three first-rounders on offense, A.J. Green, Matthew Stafford, and Sean Marino. And they score, and the entire team runs on the field. And I've never seen anything like it. Uh, I was Everyone was kind of in shock. I remember, like it was yesterday, and then I started thinking, my gosh, there's going to be a fight. And if you have a fight, you're going to lose the players for the next week as well. So I started, and our staff started trying to get people off the field. And you see penalty flags flying all over the place. And then finally I started recognizing there. I see, you know, really, I almost cussed there. It's, that's one of the worst things I've ever seen, to see players out there dancing in the faces of other players. You know, there really should have been a fight. I look back now, and I, you know, some of our players have talked over the years that what great discipline – because really there should have been a fight. You know, you, you don't do that to some other person, a, a grown man in front of millions of people. You don't do that. So that was wrong on all fronts. And, you know, I, I hear some, well, I didn't know it was going to happen. That's fine. It's wrong on all fronts. And the anger that permeated through myself, our program, our families for that whole entire year, and to be honest, even to this day, um, obviously, 20, you know, 24, seven, 365 for the rest of the year. That's all we talked about. Our strength coach, no Sean ran for 183 yards, I believe. And we did something every day at the facility to remind us of that. And then in 2008 came back and, uh, that was the most prepared team I've ever seen offense, defensively, um, inspired, prepared and put a beating on Georgia. And, um, the entire time I remember the SEC media days, I got asked the probably 50 times, what's the answer going to be? And our players were getting it too. And I would not, excuse me, nonstop tell our players, don't almost threaten them. There is going to be no retaliation. Don't, don't we're, we don't play that game with, you don't do that. You respect the game, respect your opponent, move on. And then the, the game went our way. We played well, 49-10 off uh, from the first snap with Brandon Spikes all the way to the end when we were just running all over them. And, uh, and so I just kept thinking. I look at the scoreboard. I see two timeouts. Emmanuel Moody runs for about 20 yards right in front of me. And I said, I'm going to call timeout here. I called timeout. No one really knew what was going on. And uh, and the official kind of looked at me. And I said, timeout. And he kind of stared at me. I said, timeout. I said, yeah, timeout. And then there was about 20 seconds left, and I did it again. And that's when everybody kind of knew. And our players had some fun with it. Our fans certainly had some fun with it. And that was our retaliation to the uh, nonsense that went on the year before. It's epic for Gator fans. It's on Twitter this past week, and I looked at it, and I remembered what a, a remarkable moment. You just don't know how bad Gator fans hate Georgia. Uh, and then to have that happen to you. By the way, that was choreographed, apparently, uh, by somebody in Mark Rick's company. I won't mention names, uh, but that's what we hear. Uh, and then we come out, and I believe it was the Spikes tackle on Marino that kind of set the tone, right? Oh, he destroyed him. Yeah. And he, uh, 
you know, the intensity of that day, you know, uh, it's amazing. There's certain things you remember, certain things you don't, but I remember that intensity. I remember coming over the bridge into that stadium. Matthews Bridge. Both Highland mm-hmm. Frank mm-hmm. And the traffic, I never saw that many people for that game. And there had to have been, they said it was the largest, you know, out the, the, the cocktail party area. That day, they say that was the largest maybe of all time. And so the anticipation for that game, the fact of what happened last year, the fact that we had two good teams, Georgia had a heck of a team. Uh, like I said, three first-rounders on offense and a heck of a defense. And then obviously the Gators went on to win a national title. What was that feeling like standing there watching that clock tick down and knowing that uh, all was right with your universe? Well, I remember grabbing Charlie Strong at the end of the game and because uh, the both of us were, he was so upset from the year before when we lost and gave up those yards to Noshawn, who's a heck of a running back, and just the whole taste of losing that game. That was our only loss uh, to them. And the fact, like I said, that you can't lose that game. You know, there's a guy responsible for that. His name's Steve Spurrier. You cannot lose that darn game. And I would sit in the Sawgrass Hotel and, I mean, it. There was. I really slept the night before the game because that's the pressure game. That's the one that when you go back, so okay, you were the head coach of Florida. What's your record against Georgia? And the reality is that the, any chance of getting to Atlanta to represent the East goes through Georgia, and you have to win that game. Great memories. It's time for Ask Urban. You ready? Sure. Chuck from Dothan, Alabama. Between Florida and Georgia, which team has the best shot of beating Bama in the SEC championship game? Well, I think the edge on defense obviously goes to Georgia. They are loaded. They're playing excellent uh, defensive football. The edge on offense goes obviously to, to Florida. So I don't, you know, unless we see consistent, I, I picked Florida again to be in my top four because I really believe they have a good coach on Todd Grantham, a really good coach, excellent coach. I believe they have some good young players. They're playing better now. Uh, I'd say right now neither team can beat Alabama unless the defense improves for Florida and the offense improves for Georgia. And I'm, I'm holding on to the fact that I think the Gators have the best chance because they do have a quarterback. They have experienced quarterback, talented receivers, and I believe their defense will get better. So when, not now. But at the end of the year, I'd say Florida will have a better chance. Bethany from San Diego says, if USC goes undefeated, there's a dream, uh, will they have a chance to make the playoff? And is that fair with only a six-game schedule? I think that's going to be a tough call for the uh, uh, committee. Uh, I hate the term, uh, look what it looks like, or the, you know, the look. You know, that, that, to me, that's not fair. So six games to me would be they have to look fantastic. I mean, they have to play high-level football offense and defense. If there's any flaw whatsoever and it's only a six-game schedule, I don't see them uh, uh, going regardless of the look test. One more for Coach Urban Meyer, uh, the star of the show, a big noon coming up uh, this weekend. I believe you'll be on remote this week, I think, right? Right. Big noon kickoff on Fox. My favorite uh, pregame show. All right, so this is a this is interesting. This is a Randy B from Ocala. How does a coach deal with split loyalties? 
You won a national championship at Ohio State after winning two at Florida. Steve Spurrier won a national championship at Florida and then moved on to coach South Carolina to its best record ever. Some fans feel they have the exclusive rights to you and Coach Spurrier. How do you deal with that? Well, I, it's not hard for us to deal with it. I think it's at times hard for fans to deal with it. I think that you look at your tenure at schools you go coach and you have a charge of making it a better place than when you were there. And that's something I, I know Coach Spurrier feels the same way that he certainly did. I, I believe we did at Florida. And you, you're so proud of those two national championships. And came up to Ohio State, we won one and won a bunch of games in seven years. And then, you know, you can't forget Utah. We went there and went 22-2. and two And at Bowling Green, you turned around a losing program. So um, it, it's not an issue, I don't believe, for a coach. Even, you know, Spurrier might be a little different because – he was a graduate of the University of Florida, but you know you get hired and you, especially you know I, I'm from Ohio, so that was home. But for Florida, Florida was me. I, I didn't know much about Florida. I took the job. I fell in love with Florida. Watching Spurrier days, we loved our time in Gainesville. We consider ourselves Gators forever. And you get to look back, especially when you get older now. So okay, look at these great players. Look at the fact that. You know, you won. Florida's only won three national titles, and we're able to win two of them. That's a great, you know, that's a great legacy to look back on. Pretty good resume. <clears throat> a lot of people don't know this. I'll let you go after this, Urban. Uh, is that you could have been at Notre Dame instead of Florida? And we wrote about it in your book, Urban's Way, that how very close you came to taking that program over when Jeremy Foley talked you into coming to Gainesville. Yeah, that was a contentious time you know that was the time there i'm irish catholic that was my dream job but you know i still have great affection for notre dame uh but florida is shelly wanted to live in florida um uh, jeremy foley came in and did an incredible job all that matters all that mattered really to me was winning and then number two is my family are they going to be happy and be taken care of and the way jeremy Foley presented was to this day still the best i've ever we've ever been around Urban Meyer, he'll be watching Florida, Georgia, remembering those timeouts in that great game that year. And, Coach, we thank you and look forward to next week. It's a big week, man. Thanks, buddy. The Urban Meyer Podcast every week on the best Fridays in football. I'm a grown-up. Me too. Yep, me too. But you know, these days, being a grown-up can really suck. Luckily, we're grown-ups who grew up in the coolest generation. We had video arcades. And also some of the best TV and movies ever made. We lived the origin of awesome consumer electronics. The list goes on and on. Yep, Generation X. Exactly. And we're Gen X Grown-Up. Every week, the Gen X Grown-Up podcast explores media, tech, toys, games, and more from both yesterday and today. Through the eyes of Generation Xers who absolutely love that stuff. You can find us on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. Or find us on our website, genxgrownup.com. All right, you think that was good enough? I, I hope so, man. I'm tired. <laughs> who listens to a promo on a podcast and then goes and listens to a different podcast? Right. I, I, I've never done it. Right. <laughs> Time now for Buddy's two-minute warning. We're going to go a little early this time with Buddy's two-minute warning, using the first two minutes instead of the last two to set up this great lineup of guests. This week, Terry Bradshaw is still on assignment, so it gives me a chance to treat you to a veritable cornucopia. 
mostly about the event once known as the world's largest outdoor cocktail party, now neutered and moved indoors. I won't be there, nor will Mr. College Football, Tony Barnhart. For the first time in about 40 years, one of us won't be. Nor will ESPN's Paul Feinbaum for the first time in about five years. But Gator Bait Chief Correspondent Cassidy Hill will be, and so will the Bulldog Slayer himself, Steve Spurrier, who beat Georgia 11 out of 12 seasons as a Gator coach. We're going to hear from all of them, including Tony Barnhart, on the 40th anniversary of the most famous Georgia play in history, Run Lindsay. And I want to apologize in advance to Gator fans for giving them a bad case of PTSD. On a lighter note, first we hear from Steve Spurrier, who owned the Bulldogs so many times, 11 out of 12 years. The SPCA said he had to give some of them back. This is the week we usually think about the days when Georgia was always a W for the Gators. Seems like it, 11 out of 12 years, whatever it was. I believe that's right. The man who knows is the guy who got all those W's. Coach Steve Spurrier joins the program. And glad to have you on the show today, Coach. Yeah, thank you, buddy. Uh, yeah, the Georgia Bulldogs, uh, 30 years ago when I got the job here, if we're going to win the SEC, we had had to beat the Georgia Bulldogs. As you know, uh, prior to 1990, they always beat us when either they could win it or we could win it. Yeah. And uh, <laughs> so if we wanted to win it, and we had never won one, so we had to beat the dogs. And uh, fortunately, we had a lot better team than they did those first few years. And then we sort of, you know, maintained that sort of mental edge, I think, over the Bulldogs during the 90s. Well, and, and there was a time when they were bragging about their, uh, you know, Ray Goff had all this great talent, five stars. It's almost like, you know, like deja vu here. Uh, Georgia has all these great players. And you always talked about the fact, well, you know, they still got to play. And we'll see. And uh, bottom line was you were very success- unbelievably successful. And I don't know where even if even you realize the magnitude of what you did and just completely annihilating what was then well, the we rival. Well, LSU 11 out of 12, too. Well, that, too. I know. That's, that's, that's amazing. We didn't lose many conference games no, back you didn't. in the, uh, you didn't. that era. Yeah. I think we were 87 and 14, so – uh, but it was it was different uh, than, than what we'd done in the past. I think they'd won 14 of the last 18 games prior to 90. And uh, the, the thing was that uh, their coaches would talk about how big and strong and fast and the Gators were and how they're all going to the NFL in the future and their guys got this sort of uh, claw and scratch to hang in there with us when in actuality their recruiting was – a little bit better than ours, actually, prior to the early 90s there. So I just sort of called him out and I said, hey, you, you guys got plenty of ball players and we got plenty of ball players. Let's, let's quit trying to build up one side or the other. And, and they did. They quit talking uh, after, mm-hmm. I think, that 91 game. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they did. And uh, <clears throat> you are uh, still one of the most hated men <laughs> in Georgia because you did it to them. <clears throat> well, they're back now, and they got a good no, team. No, I don't think – I disagree with you. Well, you were. You I were. Think, you were at that time. Well, yeah. I was. Yeah, yeah I was yeah. back in the 90s right. and so, so forth. Yeah. But, you know, Georgia's uh, – they got a winning tradition. They're, they're yeah. winners up there. Yeah. And uh, they can't quite beat Alabama, but they've uh, mm. they've sort of beaten us lately. Uh and there's there's something in life that winners admire and respect other winners. Mm. They do, and not not necessarily when you're playing them, but 
but later on, uh, they, they admire people that win and do it the right way. Sure. So uh, I, I think I'm in pretty good uh, pals with some. I know I'm in good pals with the athletic director, yeah. Greg McGarity. A good man. And, and so forth. Yeah. Well, you know, I would say uh, I understand what you're saying, and I, I agree with that. Mm-hmm. But here's the other side of that. And this is what eats at Georgia. They don't have a national championship since 1980. And like they say, they had Herschel and, and the other one was back in the well, Leather Helmet days. And, you know, Florida has three. So that just eats at them all the more. And, of course, that's where you want to keep your rivals if you can. Now comes the time, Steve, when this Florida football team is is gotten better. How much better? I'm not sure yet. And as we go, uh, are they gaining ground on the Bulldogs? Uh, it looks like they might be, Steve, from what we can see right now. Well, we're going to find out Saturday. Mm-hmm. It's a huge, huge game. Uh, whoever wins it uh, is going to have a, a leg up on the Eastern Division. Uh, in fact, uh, the winner could possibly even lose one other game and still win the Eastern Division. It's going to it's going to be tight, I think. Uh, the winner of the division easily could lose two games, but uh, that that's why it, back in the '90s it was sort of us in Tennessee, and uh, if we could beat them early, which we did a lot—not always, but a lot—that gave us a, a chance. If we lost one game, we could still get to the SEC championship game, which uh, happened in '93 and '94. Uh, we lost to Auburn, but we beat Tennessee and went on and won the conference. So this game is uh, of huge importance, uh, buddy, as you know. Yeah. I want to talk to you about the most recent game that was played in Missouri and missing so many players before the game started. A lot of young players had to step up. And some of them played really well, guys that we hadn't heard much from in the secondary, for instance. Mm-hmm. And you've always said, uh, if one guy's not doing the job, give the other guy a chance. And it's said by some people that sometimes these things create depth. The team played very well on defense, especially in the second half. Uh, could it be that they got better in this regard in terms of the players and what happened on the field, of course? They got their, they got kind of fired up about it, and maybe that would give them some resolve. Do you think those could be positives? Well, sometimes as coaches, uh, buddy, you don't know who your best players are. You sort of think you do, and you, you, you play your starters, and they don't play very well, and you try to coach them up a little bit more, this, that, and the other. And then finally somebody else gets a chance to go in there, and dang, that guy can make him tackles all over the place. I remember at Duke back in 89, uh, uh, first four games, we were one and three, and one of our starting outside linebackers got got hurt a little bit. And we put another kid in there. And he was making tackles all over the place. It was a redshirt freshman kid named Derek Jackson. He made like 13 tackles against Clemson one day. And I said, dang, we didn't know that guy could play like that. And, of course, he was the starter the rest of the season. And then a running back came in that same game, and all of a sudden nobody could tackle him. So so maybe we, some guys got a chance to play. And uh, Coach Grantham and that guy said, dang, these guys can play. I mean, they, uh, Missouri was 3 of 15 on third down. 3 of 15. And that's been our nemesis down, as you know. So, uh, yeah, hopefully we can continue playing defense the way we did Saturday. That That's going to give us a chance for that big year. 
Yeah, and you have, as you said, discovered some talent on your bench because mm-hmm. out of necessity, and, and that's something mm-hmm. that this team needs. So we'll see how that all works out. Unfortunately, uh, there were some things on the field that happened that nobody's proud of in the heat of battle. I'm sure that's been uh, widely publicized enough already, but bottom line is is the fines have been there, the players have been suspended. And I see that, by the way, Missouri had three more players uh, if they watch the video who also will miss a half a game. So SEC stepping in. I was going to ask you about those mm-hmm. Situations when you've been in them, you've had players, you've had scuffles, a few, not many, but when you're in something like that as a coach, you're scared to death you're going to lose a player, you don't want to have it. What do you do? You don't go out there and start punching people. What does a coach do in this situation? Well, first thing, you don't get in those situations, buddy. You don't get in those situations. Uh, I don't think we ever got in that situation during the game, did we? No, you didn't. In, in the 12 years here or there? No, you didn't. And I never, I never let guys fight in practice. I mean, back in the 80s and so forth, some coaches thought it was smart to let them fight in practice. No, that didn't make sense. Uh, football is a good, tough, hard-nosed game, and you play it, and, uh, you know, occasionally somebody's going to get a late hit or something like that, but... You, you can't start a, a brawl, a big fight with both teams going at it. Yeah, that was ugly. We all know that was ugly the other night, and uh, both sides were at fault. There's no question about it, and uh, hopefully we can learn from it, and, and it won't happen again. You know, Alabama's the probably the well, they are. They're the best uh, college football program in the history of college football. Mm. And if you watch uh, their program, they play clean, they play fair, they don't have any of those kind of fights and hitting guys out of bounds. The other night against Mississippi State, one of their guys was sort of jawing with a Mississippi State player late in the game. And Saban went halfway out on the field, jerked him out of the game, yelled at him a little bit, you know. And, uh, you know, he sort of said, we don't do that crap here at Alabama. And, uh, you know, those teams, they stay away from that kind of stuff, uh, in my opinion. So hopefully hopefully that, that, that those things aren't going to happen again. Well, you had a situation with, I believe, in New Orleans uh, at dinner where two guys got in a fight and you sent them home. The Sugar Bowl. Yeah, two guys were at the table eating, and uh, uh, I think they'd played cards that day or something happened. Yeah, they two two of our players got in an argument, and one of them uh, got, grabbed a glass and hit the other one upside the head. So we had blood all over the place. And, uh, yeah, we sent them home uh, either that night or the next morning. We, we, we just told them, uh, you're not going to do that and play for the Gators. Yeah. So uh, and they both transferred somewhere, and that was the end of their careers. Yeah, and by the way, just to sort of think about that when you're doing it, uh, and you're having to control the atmosphere as much as you possibly can, uh, you know, a coach also wants his players to quote unquote have a chip on their shoulder. Most coaches they want you to protect their quarterback. They say. You know, eye for eye, two for two, that kind of thing. And there's coaches that you know and I know who believe that you got to retaliate. The question is, is that really not a smart thing to do when you know you've got a huge game coming up and you might lose some players? I mean, how do you manage the two emotions is what I'm saying. Yeah, retaliate, retaliate. How do you retaliate? Uh, well, when Danny Warfel got knocked down by FSU 34 times after he threw the ball, uh, uh, if our guys would uh, have gone and what, well, of course they didn't call rough the password usually, but two or three times. Uh, so if our guys went and jumped on one of their guys, I, I, I guess somebody got thrown out of the game. I don't know. I, I don't know. I, 
I don't know exactly how you, you know, you can get in a guy's face or something and say don't do that, but you can't go swing at him. Mm-hmm. You're going to be out of the game. Mm-hmm. So, uh, you know, the referees, in my opinion, the referees got to handle yeah. uh, the yeah. late hits, right. late hits and those things. Right. Uh, uh, now, I saw a game, an NFL game, where some crazy dude just started swinging at the other guy. Did you see that? Yeah, Webb Swims from Georgia against Cardin Johnson, uh, Cardin Johnson from Florida. It was a Florida Georgia dude got right there. Is that who that was? Yes, it was. And so the guys, he just came out swinging at him yes. two or three times, and they let the teammates sort of go after him a bit and shove him, and, and nothing happened to them. So maybe it's okay to sort of. Well, these guys now got these guys got he got Williams got fined and kicked out. This is, if it's maybe it's a different the one. The one swinging, yeah. Yeah, he the got swinging. Yeah. Yeah, but I don't think they threw anybody. No, they the didn't. Game. They're just the one guy just swinging. Crazy yeah. dude that started Williams, swinging. Yeah. So, yeah. So maybe they allow some dude start swinging. You can grab yeah. him and hit him a bit and throw him down or whatever yeah. without getting a penalty. I don't know. Yeah. Uh, but it's it's just a fine line. That, those things should should not start and, and so forth. Yeah, your good point about Danny Werfel. If ever you're going to have one, that would have been it that day in Doak Campbell when they, they were just beating up on Danny. So that's a very good point. Mm-hmm. I, want to, I want you to take me sort of inside this game right now, Coach, if you would, just final thought, and kind of assess what you see so far on Georgia, the Bulldogs' strength, mm-hmm. the Gators' strength, the play of Kyle Trask, mm-hmm. and sort of give me your analysis mm-hmm of what you think might happen on Saturday? Well, Kyle Trash, I heard just set an SEC record for, what, 18 touchdown passes in the first four games? Correct. Like that, broke Joe Burrow's record that he held last year mm-hmm. for first four games. And uh, Cladarius Tony, I mean, he's turned into oh, wow. one of the best receivers in the country and runs those jet sweeps. I mean, man, we got to keep getting the ball to him and uh, our offense, uh, Coach Mullen, Brian Johnson, those guys, they, they're they got some good schemes, and uh, he's running excellent routes. And it's good to see Copeland make that big play. Sort of turned the game around, got us going there. And uh, I think it was about the second quarter before we really got going. Mm-hmm. So uh, anyway, our offense, uh, we're going to need to score some points and uh, not let Georgia hog the ball and run it up and down the field. So uh, I think we know what we have to do, and uh, if we can slow down their run game and uh, play offense the way we're capable. You know, I like our chances, but uh, we we got to slow down their obviously their run game and make uh, stats and throw the ball. And uh, of course, we got to mix run, pass in, all that kind of stuff. But uh, just you know, play a good game uh, and take care of the ball. Did you see the stats on that Miami Dolphin game yesterday? Buddy? I didn't see it, Coach. I know. <laughs> it was unbelievable. Uh, the Dolphin defense scored about three touchdowns, so two up. Two threw for 98 yards. He didn't even throw for 100 yards. Wow. And the Rams uh, had about five, 480 yards of offense or 500, something like that. Had the ball most all the game and all that, but still got beat. So uh, stats sometimes don't determine the winner. It's, it's obviously a team that gets the most points. And that's what we hope we're going to do is get the most points against those Bulldogs. Are you seeing a victory for the Gators? Are you going to call it on your show, the Huddle? Oh, yeah. Yeah, heck uh, yeah. I'm going yeah. to say it again. It's time to, it's time to go play those guys and get one. And uh, and uh, our guys know the importance of it. And, of course, the Dogs, they'll, uh, they'll be ready to play, too. So it's it's going gonna, it's gonna to be a heck of a game. So you'll pick it on in the huddle with Shane Matthews and uh, and do your thing, yeah, make I would, your pick. Yeah, I'll probably mm-hmm. pick us about 24, 27 mm-hmm. to 
27-17. Low scoring. 27-17. Wow. That's interesting. I'll tell you what, our little walk-on kicker, Chris Howard, I think is his name. Yes. Uh, made those two field goals early. Stepped up. Uh, excellent, excellent job by that kid. He, it was. And, you know, in that span of 33 seconds, uh, Kadarius Tony scored two touchdowns right in there mm-hmm. to put him up at the halftime, which is huge. As you point out, he has finally mm-hmm. stepped up. He is a force when he's playing like that, Coach. Oh, and he, uh, I mean, he can run routes like Ike Hillier, Quezzy mm-hmm. Green, and then when he gets the ball in his hand, man, he's hard to tackle. Mm-hmm. He, I mean, one guy can't tackle him, and a lot of times he can juke two or three at the same time. Uh, that run, run he made the other day, uh, one Missouri guy was in front, one was coming from behind, he, you know, he sort of ducked and went backwards and around. And and the two Missouri guys were hugging up with each other, like where'd he go? <laughs> it was it was the dangest uh, run for a touchdown uh, on that play, but he can do that. He is a, he is a electrifying runner, special player. And I noticed one of those guys, shorter the Penn transfer, talked about the fact that people are finding out the weapons that they've got. They've got some receivers, mm-hmm. and the guys that could be a factor that might surprise Georgia a little bit. So if if Kyle Trask keeps keeps doing what he's doing, mm-hmm. and, uh, and Kyle Pitts can do what he does, should be a W for the Gators mm-hmm. on Saturday. Well, you never know what's going to happen. you got to you know, be good in the kicking game and make no errors and mistakes and no flukish, flukish plays uh, occur, you hope. Uh, but uh, you just got to make sure you're ready to play the best you can and go after them, and uh, we'll, we'll see how we do when it's all over. But uh, certainly I like our chances, but uh, – uh, again, you know, every team's different. Uh, I've learned doing these podcasts, sometimes I pick a team on how they played the week before, like LSU. I was dumb enough to think LSU was going to go into Auburn and play the way Auburn had been playing and the way LSU looked against South Carolina. <laughs> it was a complete opposite. Auburn uh, played their best game of the year. And uh, Bo, Bo Nix, you know, he plays well at home, but on the road he's not very good for some reason. So you never know what's going to happen. That's you why know, we play the true. game to, to see what happens. True. Hey, Coach yeah. Spurry, thank you very much for your time. It's going to be fun. Okay, to, buddy. Always good to talk to you. Good to talk All to right, you, and I'm, I'm joining you on your shows you're doing. Thank you very much. All right. See you, buddy. Bye-bye. Thanks, HBC. It was a tough week for Dan Mullen, who became a punching bag for the media after the so-called brawl with Missouri. I didn't think it was a brawl. I thought it was a scuffle. But Paul Feinbaum's callers contributed to it and says the Gator coach inadvertently became a pinata on this show. It, it seemed like everyone had decided that uh, Dan Mullen was going to be the pinata, and finally uh, we ran out of baseball bats to, uh, <laughs> to break it open. And you, know, you tried to bring some reasoning, and, and I, I have to admit, I was so caught up in the emotion, I missed one of the most important things you had said. <laughs> And, and ultimately, not to belabor this discussion longer than it needs to go, but if the officials had done their job, we wouldn't be having this conversation. Uh, and I think as a result of that, everything went haywire. And everyone who has previously had grievances with Mullen, uh, dating back to Mississippi State, brought them out. Uh, all the things that didn't matter and are not germane today came out, such as you know, he wanted to leave Mississippi State. He and Scott Strickland had a, had a strained relationship there. He was the third choice. All that mattered is he, he ran out onto the field. He got this, uh, he got fined and reprimanded, whatever that means. And 
all will be forgotten uh, on Saturday if he wins the game against Georgia. Exactly. I thought for a while he was going to call from an eighth-grade girlfriend in New Hampshire who bro- who he broke up with, and she'd be weighing in on what a jerk he was. So, you know, Paul is uh, Paul. You know Mullen a little bit, and you asked me yesterday about Mullen. I don't know Dan that well, but I just got off the uh, show with Shane Matthews, and I were talking about this, and. And Shane said what I've said, and you probably said, that Dan Mullen, if you look at him as being a disciple of Urban Meyer, which he is, there's really more Steve Spurrier in him than Urban Meyer. Would you agree? Oh, totally. Uh, I'll never forget, and you you remember this, uh, whatever year he started at Mississippi State, he before he coached his first game, he came by our studio in Birmingham one day. He had met with the uh, SEC office. Mm-hmm. We spent an hour, and you know, he told stories of New Hampshire and his political interests and his career. And I tweeted afterwards. Uh, I said, I just met the next it coach in, in college football. And it took a long time, by the way, for, for that uh, to be prophetic. But you know, he, he, he has the, the skill set offensively of Urban Meyer and I think the organizational skills. But, but he is Steve Spurrier. Uh, he's got the swagger. He's got the, I really don't care if you like me. Uh, approach or not, uh, Urban, Urban wasn't like that. You know Urban better than all of us. Uh, Urban was uh, uh, was a different cat, uh, and 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 I I will say, uh, and I've always been a fan, but the, you know the last four weeks have been tough. Uh, I think he's made some uh, calculated mistake, uh, some you know, unforced errors, and you know what happened Saturday night. I don't think will matter. Mark Rick did it once uh, during the Georgia Florida game. Uncharacteristic behavior. Uh, Dan Mullen's trying to get this team uh, to a position where it can beat Georgia and get to Atlanta. That's that's the goal, and he's had a brutally difficult four weeks. So, you know, from that standpoint, I, I will probably cut him a little bit of slack. Uh, and you know, but that's not going to stop uh, the criticism. And, and I've never, you know, I've been to this game as you as you you have tutored me the last four years, but I've never really been the host of a radio show uh, where the Georgia Florida hate uh, was on was on display and that yesterday was uh, uh, or Monday was was a new experience for me. I mean, I, I know it's a rivalry, okay buddy, but I didn't think it was that bad. Keep in mind there's some people like Franz Beard who works with me whose father in 1943 was there at the game when Georgia beat Florida 75 to nothing. All right, and then there's that game, a famous game in 68 where it was 51 nothing Georgia in the rain, and Vince Dooley sent his backup center in to kick a field goal. And Gator fans remember those things. They go back. This game goes back generations. So there is a lot of that hate. And uh, it's it's a time now to see whether Florida has, in fact, caught up some. I'll get your opinion about it. You've seen a play. Uh, Do you think Florida's catching up a little bit? There's no doubt. And I think some of it is, uh, you know, Georgia is a, is, a, is a jigsaw puzzle right now. And, you know, offensively, they're a mess. Uh, defensively, they've taken some severe hits this week. So, yeah, I mean, I, I think if you're, uh, you know, if you're doing the analytics, which I don't do, Georgia still has more talent. But, uh, you know, it's not significantly more when, when, when you start factoring in all the, the injuries and, and, and what they don't have. And, and I, I think it's a really important game for, for Kirby Smart uh, because you know, he 
he's going to be uh, measured this year by, by a number of things. I mean, we all get hung up on the Saban Kirby Smart thing. That's that's not important. I mean, that that matters to Georgia fans who who believe that they are on the same level as Alabama, which they're not. Uh, they're not far from it. But you know, the most important measuring stick is Florida. And, you know, if Kirby Smart has to answer to his critics at the end of the season, not only can I beat Nick Saban, but now I've finally lost to Dan Mullen. And meanwhile, up in Columbus, uh, mm. Justin Fields is, is, is holding up the trophy for the national championship. Yeah. That, that, that could portend a, a cold winter. Another longtime observer of Florida, Georgia, and that is the proper order to say it, won't be with his friends at the world's largest outdoor cocktail party. We still call it that, but that won't stop Tony Barnhart's friends from doing the party. Well, it's November, and it's right in the shank of what is now football season. And when you're in football season, there's nobody better to talk to than Mr. College Football, especially on the weekend of what was once called the world's largest outdoor cocktail party. And maybe it might be one of the world's smallest indoor cocktail parties, but there will be some cocktails consumed for sure. And this man knows he's been to, I don't even know how many games he's been to. Tony Barnhart joins the program. And uh, Tony, sad to say we won't see each other this weekend, but difficult times call for call for difficult decisions. Well, buddy, we've got, uh, we've got a new grand grandson at, uh, in our family and they're just down the road from me and, my daughter asked me not to travel this year uh, because we're trying to take good care of him. And so I'm, I'm honoring her wishes because, as, as our good friend Lawrence Smith always says, grandchildren always win. And that is absolutely true. So I will not be tra- – but I will tell you this, just, just in keeping with uh, tradition and all that, I think you know that I've been going down to Jacksonville for more than 35 mm-hmm. years with three of my fraternity brothers. And we always stay together and play golf and – tell lies about our misspent youth Mm. uh they're there they're in jacksonville Mm. right now at our condo near the sawgrass country club and uh, they are there because it's it's florida georgia week and they're supposed to be there they don't even have to get tickets to the game but they're supposed to be in jacksonville (laughs) this week and that's why they're there and so uh i said so i wish i've I'm going to talk to him tonight, but but that's the power of the Florida Georgia game. And and first of all, you got to be impressed that I said Florida Georgia. I, I was just going to pick up on that, and it's alphabetical, so let's just settle that right now. <laughs> well, it's out of respect. It's out of respect for you. Well, I appreciate that. Uh, you know, there's so many good stories like that. Uh, if you've never been, I have some friends in the media, and one in particular, well, Paul Feinbaum. He really hadn't been to it much until four years ago, and he got educated right. on this a little bit, bring what we taught him, uh, and he's getting it now. Uh, the camaraderie, like I had good friends who just sold a home on Ponte Beach, and uh, they're Auburn graduates, by the way. But I had one year uh, where I went to their house, and we went up and down Pontevedra Boulevard there, stopping in at four or five houses, and half of them were Georgia. So there are oh, yeah. gators and bulldogs who do party together. Absolutely. Well, I, I'll tell you, I'll tell you a story. The, the the boys that I always go with, we a couple of really favorite restaurants that we do every year in Ponte Vedra, uh, and we walked in two years ago, three years ago, 
the four of us walk in together and sitting there with his wife. Who was it? Augusta National, former player at Georgia, chairman of the uh, Olympics in 1996. He was there. I've known him for years. And uh, saw Billy, said hello, introduced him to my, my boys, and we sat down in our corner. And he came and uh, just left what he was doing, came and sat down with us for about 15 minutes, just talked. Uh, yeah, t- Tony, you cut out you cut right at the time. You cut out right at the time. You said his name, and we didn't catch the name, so repeat it. Just oh, repeat it. Mm-hmm. Billy Payne. Billy Payne. Uh, okay, Billy yeah. Payne, we heard of him. Player, uh, <laughs> yeah. Uh, former chairman of Gus National, yeah. and uh, he was there. He, he dro- I've known Billy for a long time, and he dropped by and sat with my friends. And, uh, but that's, that's the kind of stuff you get to do with the Florida-Georgia game. It's special. It is special. <clears throat> Speaking of special, hopefully we got you in a good signal here now that we can hear everything. Uh, I, want, I wanted to go back. This is kind of story time day. Uh, Urban Meyer uh, on the podcast earlier was talking about the famous timeout game. Uh, and uh, maybe as famous, well, it is the most famous play uh, in Florida, Georgia history. Uh, and, and Gator fans hate to even hear it while I say it, but it is. It is Baloo to Lindsey Scott, run Lindsey, and the great Larry Munson on the call. And I didn't know until I read your fine piece on SITMG. See, I got it right, didn't I? Uh, that, that, that this was the 40th anniversary. Tony, uh, take us through that dark moment for Gator fans and the glorious moment <laughs> for the Georgia Bulldogs. Baloo to Lindsey Scott, run Lindsey. Well, as, as the great late great Larry Munson would say, get the picture. Georgia was ranked undefeated, ranked number two in the nation. Herschel Walker was a freshman uh, on his way to an incredible season. And so Georgia was going to play Florida in Jacksonville, I think Charlie Pell's second year uh, as head coach. And Georgia jumped out to a 20-10 to 10 lead, looked like they were in control, but then the Gators came back, got a touchdown, a two-point conversion, and a field goal, and they're up. 21 to 20 with six minutes left. Suddenly, Georgia realized everything is on the line. Everything's on the line. They, a chance to win the SEC championship, a path to the national championship, it would all be gone if they lost to the Gators. Uh, the two teams exchanged punts. Uh, Gators had a third and eight that if they convert, they run out the clock and win the game because Georgia's using their timeouts. They didn't convert that third and eight, and so Florida chose to punt punted it out of bounds at the Georgia eight-yard line. First two plays for Georgia, Buck Ballou uh, netted a minus one yard, uh, one yard loss and an incomplete pass. And on third down, third and uh, third and 11, they called a play called left 76. All they were trying to do was get a first down because they have an All-America kicker in uh, Rex Robinson. I talked to Coach Vince Dooley this week. They were just trying to get him in position to kick a long field goal. So they ran what was called left 76 and called for Lindsey Scott to run a curl route and catch the ball for the first down. Well, he ran the curl route. He caught the ball for the first down. But that moment, the Florida defender got tangled up with a Georgia wide receiver. He slipped to the ground. Is that Tim Groves? Scott. Who was it that? Was. Mm-hmm. It was. It was Tim Groves. And Lindsey Scott told me, he said, well, when I t- – when the Florida guy slipped down, I looked, and there was nothing between me and the goal line except green grass, and I took off. 
and it is an iconic scene of Scott running down the sideline. Vince Dooley was trying to run to keep up with him. He, he said, I kept up with him for about 10 yards. And then Lindsey Scott went into the end zone in a mass of humanity. Uh, Georgia won the game, beat Auburn the next week for the SEC championship, beat Georgia Tech, and then beat Notre Dame in the Sugar Bowl for the national championship. It is wow. it is the single biggest play mm. <coughs> in Georgia football history because of what it led to. And 40 years later, we're still talking about it. Mm. And I had a great visit with Lindsey Scott and Buck Blue and, and Coach Vince Dooley this week. It was a, It was a lot of fun. Well, it was also the, one of the darkest moments in Florida history, but it was a great moment for the Bulldogs, and I can understand why you celebrate. It's one of the greatest college football plays of all time, period. And uh, that yep. one's uh, – I don't think – I don't believe Buck Ballou's bought a drink in Atlanta since then. So, uh, <laughs> uh, <clears throat> But, uh, you know, in, in, on the call, if – I don't know where you get this, probably on the Georgia website, but the great Lauren Smith would know, but uh, – I've heard it dozens of times. I'm sure Bulldog fans have heard it hundreds of times. Larry Munson had a call of calls. I don't know if you can replicate any of it. I just remember the part about it. And when you set it up, you have to explain that Georgia fans come down here a week early to socialize from all the way up in St. Simons to Sea Island down to to Jacksonville Beach, uh, to Ponte Vedra. All through, like just jam those hotels, and they have a good time partying, and that sets up what Larry Munson said when that happened. Well, there, there two, and there are two parts to the call. One is the play itself, when uh, Lindsey Scott starts running, Munson starts counting it down, you know, you know, down to the thirty, the forty, the forty-five, the fifty, and about the forty-yard line of Florida, where Munson just blurts out, "Run, Lindsey." <laughs> and he just said, he says, run, Lindsey. And he counts it down. When he gets to the very end, 10-5, and he never says touchdown. He just says, Lindsey Scott, Lindsey Scott, Lindsey Scott. He's screaming. Then what happened is, is priceless. And I went back and, and, and watched the entire sequence. Of, I, I watched the entire last five or six minutes of the game. And here's what, here's what happened is that when – when Munson says Lindsey Scott, Lindsey Scott, Lindsey Scott, he then took his arms and cast them out wide in the radio booth, and that was his signal for everybody in the booth to shut up and let the crowd tell the story. And I went back and listened to it and timed it, and for a full 40 seconds, there was nothing but crowd noise, which was just incredibly loud. And once the 40 seconds passed, Larry Munson's color analyst, Phil Schaefer, broke the silence and said, Larry, if you wanted a miracle, we just got one. And they explained the play. But here's the thing that you're talking about, buddy. When, it, uh, when they got to the end, Larry Munson said, at the end of the call, he said, do you realize what is going to happen up here tonight and in St. Simons and Jekyll Island where all these dog people have got these condominiums for four days, man, is there going to be some property destroyed tonight? <laughs> and that you can find that on the back of T-shirts to this day. That's fabulous. And by the way, just coincidentally, when they asked about the miracle, the guy calling the game had a call about a miracle too, didn't he? <laughs> about that, yes. Yeah, yes, a lot of people. Look, 
people assume that the great Keith Jackson called that game because he called every big game in the South you can imagine. But it was Al Michaels, 35-year-old Al Michaels, who the February before coined the immortal phrase, do you believe in miracles? Yes, at Lake Placid when the USA beat the uh, beat the Russians 4-3 to three in hockey. Al, Al Michaels was 35 years old. He was there with Frank Broyles. Frank Broyles was the color analyst. Uh, and, and a lot of people don't remember that. Was fortunate enough to be there myself that night in Lake Placid. But anyway, I didn't hear the call until later. Uh, so, Tony, this is a great story time stuff. I love doing this with you. But we've got a ball game to talk about. And this is yep. a huge game. Uh, just talking to Coach Meyer today, we agreed. This is Urban Urban says. He says this is Dan Mullen's biggest game ever. We talked about narrowing the gap. <clears throat> Here we are. It's, I think, a three-point game uh, on, the, on the line. Uh, we know the story of Georgia's really uh, imposing defense. We know Stetson Bennett's inexperience. We know about some of the great talent Georgia's got. We know about, obviously, Kyle Trask on a tear. We know about some of the receivers. Obviously, Kyle Pitts being the first-round draft choice. And we know about Florida's defense, which got a little better last week against Missouri. So it sets up interestingly. Tell me how you break it down. Well, if you look at it logically, uh, there I don't see a path for Georgia to win the game uh, simply because their quarterback, Stetson Bennett, has, has really struggled. Uh, Kyle Trask simply gets better every single week. I think the two things, the matchup with Kyle Pitts, but what impressed me last week, it looks like Kadarius Toney is finally becoming what we all kind of hoped he would be uh, and looked very impressive last week. And then you figure out that, you know, Georgia was counting on Richard LeCount, their All-American safety, to help with Kadarius Toney, to help with Kyle Pitts, to be a big part of that. Well, he's out. He was in a dirt bike accident when they got back from the Kentucky game, and he's, he's going to be fine. He's going to fully recover, but he's lost for the season in football. And so you put it all together, and the fact that this is such a big game for Florida, Georgia just won three in a row, and, and I'm sure some Gator fans are saying this is, this is our best opportunity to beat Georgia. So I don't, I'm not going to make my pick until tomorrow. Uh, that's what my employer asked me to do. But uh, it's hard for me to see a logical way uh, a logical way that uh, Florida is not going to win this game. Mm-hmm. I, th- I think they, uh, I think you look now, but buddy, you and I both know we have we have come to this game many times and seen things we do not expect. Things, you know, I, I had one Georgia coach tell me one time. He said, "I never have a feel for this game until I cross the river. When I cross the river is when I finally figure out kind of where we are." So it'll. It'll be, it'll be one. I, I think it's going to be a classic game. I really do. Expect the unexpected. Lindsey Scott being one of those. I remember a year when the holder, Bobby Etter, on the extra point of Florida was ahead by a point. Uh, Vince went for the for the tie. The holder fumbled the ball, picked it up, and ran it in for two points, and Georgia won the game. So those kind of things tend to happen. And uh, even without Tony Barnhart and Buddy Martin, I suspect be in there. I suspect there'll be some things that we don't expect that will happen. Yes, yeah, I, and I think uh, I think they will. And, you know, Georgia's got a bunch of guys banged up on defense, but to their 
credit. They've got they've got a very talented roster. So let's let's see let's see how well they've recruited uh, when, when some of those second second line guys have got to move up. Great point, and and of course you hope there's no COVID. Like so far, Florida's escaped oh, it. Please. Hopefully, Georgia's escaped no. it. So we're not going to have how many fans we're going to have about twenty thousand. Is that what you're saying? Just under just under twenty thousand. Yeah. Each school got about nine thousand tickets. Yeah. Each. Well. There may not be any property destroyed, but there are going to be some things, a few adult beverages consumed there for those who are there, like your friends, who are not going to the yep. game, but they're going to the party. They're going to the party. That's exactly right. Tony Barnhart, Mr. College Football, always a good time to be with you, Tony. Thanks so much. Okay, buddy. Take care. Thanks, Mr. College Football. Casty Hill will be in the press box. Here's Cassidy Hill. She's the chief correspondent for Gator Bait. Let's go around the SEC and take a look. Cassidy, what's going on? Yeah, so this is uh, really sort of the first week of the playoff. If we had an 18 playoff, you know, I feel like I think that the actual matchups would be a little different, but I feel like I can fudge a little bit and say this is the first week of an 18 playoff because you have number five, Georgia, versus number eight, Florida, and number one, Clemson, versus number four, Notre Dame. Uh, Texas A&M plays South Carolina. Texas A&M is number seven. And um, Alabama plays LSU. I know LSU is not what they were last year, but that's still going to be a good game. And, you know, looking specifically just at the Gators, they have a chance to move way, way up because number one or number four is going to lose. I don't know which one, but one of them is guaranteed to lose. And then if they beat number five, Georgia, you could feasibly see um, Florida knocking on the top five, depending on what happens to Texas A&M, whether or not they even get in. And Cincinnati, who I didn't realize had snuck up in there yeah. at number six. Um, so, you know, it, it, and Cincinnati's a group of five schools, so if they take one loss, they're, they're dropping way down. Um, so, you know, Florida could feasibly – sneak in to the back end of the top five after this weekend if you know if they win and take care of business and a couple of other teams lose when you look at the sec it's really kind of a division uh quite a divided divisions i think there are four team losing teams in the west right now and five losing teams in the sec east and of course we know who the cream of the crop is uh, i don't know if this is because they're playing each other or what but uh, really, there are only a handful of t- really good SEC teams. Right. And that's always sort of the case with the SEC is they beat up on each other. And this year, they have no tune-up wins to sort of stack their resume. And so, you know, South Carolina, which probably would have gotten a couple of good wins against smaller schools, and South Carolina that has played some, some pretty decent games. Um, you know, and they beat Auburn, but... Uh, probably would have had a much better record with, you know, a full schedule. Um, but it's just, it's hard for some of the teams at LSU. Who knows what happened there? This ain't your national championship team from last year, folks. That's just some people in the same jerseys. Um, and then, I'm trying to think of who else. Uh, you know, Texas A&M kind of snuck up. I feel like, I, I say they snuck up because I wasn't buying into their hype season. Maybe I should have. It's just the same hype I heard for the past three years, so I wasn't ready to buy into it yet. Um, and then, I, you know, I think people thought Tennessee would be a lot better than they were. 
are a lot better than they have been. Um, Overrated. Overrated, just like Kentucky and a few others. Yeah. I really thought Kentucky would be a little bit better. But it's a little it is a little bit harder playing all the games because um you know, it's it's like a round robin and uh you're gonna get smacked around a little bit more, you're gonna come out with bruises and bumps more than you probably would playing a smaller team. And um so you you really are seeing how tough it is to play. We always do, but this year especially shows just how how tough it is to play in this league. And the fact that on any given Saturday, any team can win, except for probably Vanderbilt. But you know. Well, when you look at it, you look at Auburn and say, "Well, they got a winning record. They've been lucky. They benefited from calls. They look terrible. Right. Then all of a sudden, Bo Nix looks like he's better. They seem to play on the road. They're not a championship team." But if you fill them in the mix, you really got that's your five teams right there. Uh, is there anybody that can beat Alabama? Well, I, I hate to sound like a homer, but I would say Florida. Because Florida's offense is the only offense in the SEC that I've seen that can go toe-to-toe with them. And if Florida's defense could put together another performance like they did Saturday night, then I'll be daggum. We might have a full, complete team here. Because you know Alabama has that. Georgia doesn't. Georgia was Georgia was exposed a little bit against Alabama. Now I say that, and Stetson Bennett's probably going to come out and throw for 530 yards and six touchdowns against Florida. But Stetson Bennett and the Georgia offense had been lackluster all season, and it finally caught up to them against Alabama. Thanks, Cassidy. Time now for Andy's Candies. Don't ask me why, but it is. Every week we do this with the executive producer. And Andy is here again. Andy Billman. He's got a great gig going in television. He's pretty good on what he does, producing a radio show. Why would a guy want to mess up a perfectly good career with something like Andy's Candies? Hello, Andy. Hello, everybody. I got another tune this week for everybody out there. Bye, bye. The Browns are on a bye. The Browns are five and five, and we lo- we like Coach Stefanski. The dog pound was drinking Resky and Rye, singing, Why can't the Browns stop the Raiders running game? Why can't the Browns stop the Raiders running game? I- I'm sorry. This is not American Idol, okay? This is like four weeks in a row you try to pull this off, and please stop oh. singing and start talking about what's going on this week in the world of college football. Normally speaking, you give us a couple of picks Around the SEC, you got a couple of big games this week, and you heard yes. Coach Meyer talking about it earlier. Obviously, yes. Florida, Georgia, and obviously Clemson, Notre Dame. And I know you like one of those games. I like this is a great weekend for college football. And I am still not happy about the Raiders running game, but I'm going to talk about college football now because that's what I do here on Andy's Candies. I got two quickies, and then we'll get to the big boys. Take Tennessee, Tennessee plays Arkansas, Indiana's at home against Michigan. Take both home dogs. Arkansas, one and a half. Indiana, three and a half. I like both home dogs. You can figure that out later. Home but dogs are pretty ones. good. Though. You're right about that. Usually speaking. Yes. Uh, and by the way, uh, we talked to Andy Sheridan this week, and he's well known, but uh, he, not, he didn't pick them. He sets the, he sets the, uh, the lines, uh, and right. he's an odds maker. But he says he likes, when he does pick games, he likes those underdogs, and he likes home dogs. 
I do too, and I love both this week. Arkansas has impressed me. They play tough all year, and I think, frankly, Indiana's better than Michigan after what I saw last week. I flip-flopped on Michigan, but I'm flipping back against Michigan. Now to my Irish. Huge game, buddy. Um, throughout my Irish fandom, I have witnessed Miami, Notre Dame. Florida State, Notre Dame. And enter said team, Notre Dame, over the years. I think this is a big, big game for Coach Kelly. He's gotten close against Georgia twice, but didn't win either game. And he's had blowouts against Clemson in the 18 playoffs. And then he had a horrible, horrible Saturday night loss in 17 to the Canes. He just has not been able to win this game. So I think it's a big, big game in the Notre Dame fandom world. I know a lot of people are excited, as I am too, with Lawrence being out. I hope Lawrence is okay. I hope he's recovering nicely from that. They have a new quarterback in there, obviously, playing against the Irish. But, buddy, the whole week, people have been pouring money into the Tigers. They're only giving away five and a half or six, depending on your line. I have it as five and a half as of today, on Thursday. I hate doing this, but I like the Tigers. I don't think Book will be able to do enough. I've watched him now for three years. He's a decent to good quarterback, but in this game, he has to play to, I think, a very good to great level, and I just don't think he'll do it. And ATN's a star. I know everybody talks about Lawrence, but I think ATN is a star. Dabo always has his team ready to play. I sadly got to take the Tigers. Oh. You know, I got new respect for you. I was just about to pounce all over you if you picked Notre Dame and saying no. there is no way the Irish will win the game and not likely the cover. I see Clemson by two touchdowns. I think you're right, and I hate saying that. And, buddy, it kills me to say that, but I've watched the Irish. I've watched these games. They don't have that Claypool star who's now tearing it up for the Steelers. They just don't have that kind of player, and they need that in this game. And they have very good players, don't get me wrong, but ATN is the best player in the field, and that's the difference in this game. You know, Cassie Hill told us earlier this is like a playoff weekend because we're going to settle yes. some issues in the top four when this week is over. And I don't know about you, but I've made a pick finally on Florida, Georgia. I don't know if that line's still three. Maybe it has dropped. I'm not sure. I've not mm -hmm. picked Florida the last year or so on this game. I finally have done it. I think Florida will win the game straight up. I've been back and forth on this game, too. This has been a hard game. I actually did a lot of um, reading on different websites, and obviously I've been listening to the Buddy Martin Show um, as we got you know, my partner over there. Hey, that's and a I've good thing. I like that. That is a good thing. That is a good thing. I've been listening to people coming in and out. And, you know, I was really trying to find things of what I liked about this game. And, I, you know, obviously the quarterback here, Trask, is there, there's a big advantage. I've been reading all week about how Georgia needs control, time possession, which I agree with, but they haven't done that in the last two games. And there's also this stat, too, about Georgia trying to win four in a row since the first time since 78, 83. I like, the, I like stats like that. I think those stats are fun. I was trying to find a reason to take Georgia. I was, and I was thinking about taking them today. And then I went on some Georgia fan websites. And that always tells me a little bit more about the game. And, buddy, I, I think Florida's going to win. I tried, to, I tried to be the heel. I tried to find reasons to take the Bulldogs. But I have to take a third underdog this week. I think Florida's going to win. Mm, how about that? I really do. So recap your really picks, do. would you please? And let me tell you about those Bulldog fans. They've been on my case for a while now, for two years. I mm -hmm. warned them two years ago, you're going to hear footsteps. Guess what's happening right now? All right. Yeah. Who do you got, Andy? 
take the Gators. You might you might be getting three. You might be getting three and a half. I got three and a half today. It's Thursday the fifth. Take the Gators. Take the you're giving away five and a half against Clemson or six. A lot of people are putting money on the Tigers. Two home dogs, um, Arkansas and Indiana. The Hoosiers take them both. You heard it. The sweetness of Andy's candies. Thanks, Andy. Thank you, and thank God the Browns don't play this week. I get to take a nap here in Andy's candies. Goodbye, take Andy. Chocolate and take a nap. I just want to say though, I'm very excited about the Browns Super Bowl chances. Goodbye, everybody. Goodbye. Take the home dogs. Thanks to all these people for making the best Friday in football possible. It should be the best Fridays in football, but this is the best Friday, so it's singular. Gatorbait Lighthouse Builders, Truth, Honor, Dignity. Dr. Jim Duke, the Orthopedic Institute. Sissy Long, in memory of her beloved Chuck. Lauren Meadows in Ohio, rooting for the Gators and for quality. Jeffrey Meldon, Meldon Law. Maxine, former Gator captain, pulling for his coach Mullen, but also remembering the 69 Gators. He was the captain. Jeff Ulmer, loyal to the Gators, Hatters, Gator Bait and the Ocala Quarterback Club. The Ocala Quarterback Club. Mike McGinnis, captain. Red Star Medical Research, seeking tomorrow's answers to the health questions of today. We hope you're enjoying the best Fridays in football podcast with Urban Meyer. Hopefully Terry Bradshaw will return soon. On behalf of director Brendan Martin and executive producer Andy Billman, thanks to all our great guests, Steve Spurrier, Paul Feinbaum, Tony Barnhart, and to our regular contributors, Andy and Cassidy. I'm Buddy Martin. You've been listening to one of the best Fridays in football. Coming up on 5-Minute News, I'm Anthony Davis. You might think it's partisan because maybe it's critical of one side or the other, but it's not, it's just the truth. And I think that's also something that's kind of unusual for Americans listening to the radio or to podcasts because the news landscape in the States has been so partisan for so many decades. So 5-Minute News is verified, truthful, independent, unbiased and essential world news daily.